0: Uh, before I get started and before we pray, I want to talk a little bit about my theology of death. And I'll tell you why. It seems like an odd place to start for a Sunday and Family Matters. But as a culture, we have been captivated with this Titan submersible story. It's been leading our news coverage, it's probably been on your social media feed. You've probably seen plenty of tasteless jokes about it uh, as well. And I find it fascinating. Uh, our, our sense, because now the stories that are coming out about the cost to uh, taxpayers and private industry and what went wrong and who 's to blame, and we 're hearing the stories of those five individuals, fathers and sons and stepdads and uh, CEOs and whatnot uh, and we 're packing a lot of energy into that experience uh, to the point that in some ways, for some of us, these feel like known folks. And so their death begins to take on a certain amount of subtext and meaning for us culturally. And no small reason for that is there was a cycle, about a three-day window of time, where it was living out like a Hollywood script, and we thought, well, maybe there's a chance for recovery here or answers. And so we pour a lot of energy into those lives and that experience. Anytime I do a memorial service, one of the things that I say is that we are here to remember a loved one. You wouldn't be here except for the phenomenon of love and relationship. You come to a funeral or memorial service because you knew the one who has died, or you are deeply and closely connected with a member of their family or grandchildren. That love can be auxiliary. It can be generational, whatever the case might be. Something about the story of the one who passed has impacted and affected you in some deeper way. And the closer you are in love experience to the one who's died, perhaps then the deeper the grief in the mourning. So we have this cultural phenomenon of of this experience of these five lost lives in a rather spectacular manner. And I think in the economy of my experience of God, one of the things that's true is I am equally invested in and brokenhearted about the 300 Pakistani refugees who died just off the coast of Greece. If you're not familiar with their story, a rather unscrupulous fishing captain met them on the coast fleeing from conditions of war and extreme poverty in Pakistan. And in a fishing boat, he packed 750 people, and way more than he should have, and in fact he's now facing criminal charges for it, and began a trek to Greece. That ship overturned, and 300 lives, including almost 100 children, were lost. Now, we're not hearing so many of their stories, and it's held in tension for me against the fact that we're hearing the story of one of the richest people in Pakistan, and these 300 of the poorest people. And for me, the experience of this process, Camille's prayer challenged us to be and do the gospel, is to begin to take on the eyes of Christ and the work of kingdom building that begins to see the value of the human experience, not just in the stories that get told, but in those that remain untold as well. Because it's confessional to say that a part of our fascination with the loss of the Titan submersible has to do with the extreme wealth involved there. Most of the people in this room will not know what it's like to have $250,000 to spend discretionarily to take a trip down to a place none of us will see with our own eyes. And so there's a fascination for that, an aspirational sense of what would it be like to have that kind of money? Rarely, if ever, do we take on that sense of inspiration of the idea of what would it mean for me as a parent to have to leave where I live because of my fear of violence or my absolute inability to feed and care for my children, that I would risk climbing into a boat with 749 other people just for the chance of asylum and something new. Do you see what I mean about the economy of God's work in our stories? Be and do the gospel. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for families. The families that matter most to us, those stories of healing and redemption and the need therein. The stories that make the news and the stories that don't. Our struggles, our lives, all this we bring to your throne and to your cross in this season. In the hopes that as we express our heart's cry, you would hear us and join in our song. That you'd meet us in moments like these and that your spirit would move among us. That we might know faith and faithfulness from you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So throughout the last couple of Sundays, about seven Sundays, we've been talking about family matters in our series, and I've made some pretty bold claims about the nature of families and why they matter and what they accomplish and do. And just to review that, because today when we talk about our gospel story, it will be a chance for us to use the Word of God and the Gospel of John to kind of serve as a sieve to my work for the last few weeks and to talk about how these ideas about family are really at play in this one story about Jesus and his mother. We talk about the idea that families shape and define us who we are, that they're an opportunity to celebrate together, that they send us out to live in a missional way in a local church, that families can struggle, and we confess that, that families inevitably grow and change sometimes in their dynamic and relationship and intensity one with another, sometimes in their size and makeup. And that families look to the future, that they're future oriented, that they're inviting a sense of what comes next and nudge us into tomorrow. Well, today we're gonna talk about family matters from a gospel perspective with a story of Jesus and his mother. Jesus and the family is our topic for today. And here you have this picture of Jesus and his mom, the iconography here. They didn't just walk around with gold plates on the back of their head. That's an image of their blessedness and their divinity. Um, And you've got Jesus looking back at Mary. This is one of those stories that is not about Mary, you know, uh, cradling Jesus in the manger. This is not Mary at the cross. This is not uh, Mary coming with children. And who are my brothers and sisters but those who do the spiritual work of God? This is not Mary at the temple worried at 11. This is Mary... With fully formed adult son, Jesus, who needs to move into the ministry that has been sent for him. This icon, this graphic, comes from a much larger picture. And it's what I like about this work, be it stained glass or anything else, is that they strive and attempt to capture a bigger picture. And so let's talk about the wedding of Cana and the big picture therein. Our text for this morning comes from the Gospel of John. In the second chapter. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus hadn't been born yet. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is just being born. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been tempted, gone out to the wilderness, called disciples, and is now starting a healing and feeding ministry. But in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, how things are organized, the emphasis on story is on family. So it's on the third day a wedding took place in Canaan in Galilee, Jesus' hometown. Nearby, six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them right to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the much cheaper stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan in Galilee was the first of the signs, the wonders, the miracles through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now I mentioned before that the gift of a picture like this is that it contains but just a small part of the much larger scene, the whole scene, the whole picture of what's going on. And be it stained glass window or or murals or things like this, they try and get so much of the story. You see here not just Mary and Jesus, but servants with jugs and brides and grooms and masters of the house. And what I want to do is take this image of the wedding of Cana and draw us into a couple of specific parts today as we talk about our Family matter series and we talk about our individual families and spend some time with each of the stories that are represented here and in the Gospel of John. First, I want to talk about Mother Mary and Mary's confidence. Mary has the utmost confidence in God. Now, it's manifest in Jesus, but her confidence is in the promises of God, Because an angel has come to her and made significant claims about what her son was going to do and be. And to this point in Jesus' story in the Gospel of John, he is yet to accomplish those things fully. And so she is invited to a wedding. The disciples come along with Jesus. They attend this wedding. And they run out of wine. And this is an an artificial crisis. It could have been any number of things that provided Mary the opportunity to nudge Jesus into more. But it just so happened that they happened to be at the same wedding at the same time where wine had run out. And out of her confidence in the promises of God and her belief in her son, she has a sense that Jesus can do something about it. And imagine the confidence in that mother. To just walk up to her son at this wedding party and say, they have no more wine. She knows that he can do something about it and is confident that he will. But Jesus' first response to his mother's nudging is protest. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And you see him eating some boiled eggs or something here. I'm not sure what's going on. But he's looking back. He's looking back at the request of his mom, at her confidence. He's not at all engaged in the concern with the wine. We don't even know that he knows the couple or the master of the house real well. This is not a wedding that he has shown up to because his bestie is finally getting married. He went because it happens in his hometown area. His mom is invited. He's invited because she's invited. And his friends get to tag along as his plus 12. And they show up at this party. And his honest answer is, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now the anticipation of that in the Gospel of John is that Jesus knows what he's meant to do. He knows who he's called and equipped to be. But he's not yet ready to make these big claims about what God is doing in and through him. He is in fact trying to get his ducks in a row. He's been baptized by his cousin John, he's called disciples to himself, he's begun teaching, but he has not yet done the signs and wonders that will define his ministry career. People have not yet been healed, people have not yet been fed. And here he finds himself not on the grandest stage where he can reveal himself in all of his glory, like maybe he imagined was going to be the case, but at a family wedding in the backwoods of Galilee. This was not the place that God's glory was supposed to show up first. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Rewind to Mary's confidence. Mary didn't even address Jesus at this point. She addresses the servants. Do whatever he tells you. And this is how I imagine it as a storyteller. Mary says, they're out of wine. Jesus says, what's that got to do with me? Mary says, do whatever he tells you, and then she just walks away. (laughs) I have spoken, there will be no discussion, do whatever he tells you. And the work that happens comes in an unexpected way. Because I want to talk to you about the jars, the unexpected jars at the wedding. Now they no doubt had wine jugs that they had been using, and Jesus didn't want to use old wine skins because he was going to preach about that later. Instead, he turned to five or six ceremonial jars that would have been in the common room. They were used for ritual cleansing in Judaism. They were the same jars that water would have been drawn out of when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. They are the same jars that are used for the ritual cleansing of kitchen utensils. Not unlike our modern kitchen has the three-sink method. For washing and bleaching to keep us safe and healthy. They are the same jars that you would ritually clean your hands. In preparation to receive meals. They are the same jars by which on a day to day basis. You made yourself clean and right with God. They had a religious, a sacred, a ceremonial purpose. And not one of those purposes was drinking and the service of alcohol. So the jars that Jesus uses are the least likely to facilitate this miracle. Use the ceremonial jars. Fill them up with water. And they would have gone to a well or cistern bucket by bucket, and they would have filled these jars back up to the brim. They weren't going to be empty. They were in the middle of a party. They would have been used with some regularity already. They topped them off. And then the question that I want you to answer for me on the patio today is, when did the miracle happen? We'll meet over donuts. When did the miracle happen? Do you picture Jesus going, and creating 20 to 30 gallons of the world's best wine, white or red, pick your favorite, doesn't matter? Because I don't. Because the word that's used again and again in the Gospel of John to describe this process is water. The servants draw out the water. They take the water to the master of the house. The master tries, and it is there, it says, the water that has been turned into wine. And then he says, oh, you brought the best wine. But then it immediately goes back to talking about it as water because he didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants knew because they drew out the water. I like the sense... Of this continual, creative, miraculous experience of Jesus. That it's not just about the, I did it, it's done, I can walk away from it. But that somehow the work of God and the Spirit is not contained just by one jar or many, but is continually moving through the experience. Because it comes from an unexpected place and it becomes the best thing that they had. And the thing that motivates this for me is that it requires the trusts of the servants. Let's zoom in on this kid. Look at him pouring that water working so hard. They trust not only Mary, remember, do whatever he says. But they trust this Jesus and this process. Because he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the house. And so these are people who work for the master. Some of you have been to modern weddings. These are not caterers hired from some business, maybe trying to make a tip. These aren't aspiring actors who turn bar on the weekends. These are servants in a household. And if they screw up, there's consequence. Punishment, maybe a beating. Maybe death. So think about what's at stake when the son of a wedding guest who brought 12 friends asked you to take a cup of water out of the ceremonial jug and deliver it to the master of the house. The servants trust the process. And they are so amazed that it worked. That what is drawn out is not just servant water, but the best wine. As a storyteller, this is what I imagine happened. They deliver the wine, they pour it in the master's cup. The master says, Oh, you have saved the best till last. And on their way back, they're like, He's not wrong. (laughs) The master is amazed. He's the older guy on the right there, bride and groom on their wedding day, but the master of the house who's hosting them. We don't know their relationship. Maybe he's a family friend, whatever the case might be. It is his estate where it's happening, and he turns to the bridegroom who would have been responsible for providing the beverages in this venue and says, you have saved the best to last. Most everybody is cheap and silly, and they serve the best they've got first so that when their friends and family are drunk, they won't notice that it is terrible but you gave us the best for last. That what is happening now is something phenomenal. Where did you find it? And that by this there is a shine, there is a blessing that falls on the bridegroom because of the miraculous work of Jesus. And then it says, this is the first of many signs and wonders wherein Jesus will reveal His glory And the disciples believed in him. We don't know what happens to all these wedding guests. We don't get the rest of their story. But we know that time and again when Jesus will enact some of these miracles that transform the experience that the disciples have having of the world, People do not walk on water, and yet Jesus walks on water. People do not still storms, and yet Jesus stills the storm. People do not turn two loaves and five fish into a feeding for a 5,000, yet Jesus does exactly that. People don't heal the lepers and the broken and the blind, and yet Jesus does that. People don't talk to sinners or eat on the Sabbath, but Jesus Does that, these signs and wonders that the kingdom of God is something that is different and upside down? And the disciples believed. And the disciples believed. We've been talking about family matters throughout this series, and what might we learn from a a family story like this? Well, we see the ways in which Jesus was shaped. It's a celebration in this wedding for sure. We see Jesus being sent out into the world by the work of God, yes, but by a mother who insists, do whatever he says. Jesus who is sent out and equipped. There is a struggle. Woman, why is this my problem? It is not yet my time. The understanding of the nature of family and the work of God shifts dramatically as Jesus' glory is revealed and it anticipates being the first of many what the future will hold for the ministry of Jesus. So what do we learn? Well, the first is that families see things different. And in what we can see, we see in Mary seeing the potential of Jesus, seeing the potential of her promised son. Our loved ones see in us sometimes things that we cannot and will not see about ourselves. It was true of my parents. One of my mom's favorite sayings is, Andy, God's got to have a purpose for you because you survived too much growing up. It's true of my wife, who at my low points sees things in me and potential in me that I will never fully understand. There are even some Sundays where you don't see it, but I do. I sit down next to her in the front row and I go, that sermon was a stinker. She's able to see in me how the Spirit of God was at work despite my own struggles and my own shortcomings. Families see what we cannot, and families also see what the world does not. There are stories out of my family of origin, out of my grandparents' generation and beyond that, that are not told on social media or on the news, but are told around campfires and dinner tables. A transformational way of understanding who we are and where we've been and what we've come from. Not to air our dirty laundry, but they are a part of who we are because what we see when we are family differs from what the world sees and what we see in ourselves. Families also have the potential to see the dark side. To see when we're getting it wrong. To see when we need the, the next idea of the nudge. Right? You're not being all that you can be. You need to do better, be better. Our nudge is how we can move in our families and in our families in faith. Mary nudges Jesus out into this grand experience. Don't wait for the best time. Do your best in this time. Do the miracle now, here, not on the grand stage, but in an invitation to make a difference. Families nudge us differently We're invited to somehow see this transformative work of God, not when we expect it, but in the ways we least expect it. Why? Because we are trying to see as God sees. Because how God sees us and our lives is always unique and different from the way that we see them. It's like the ceremonial jar. Friends, your life may have always been used for one specific purpose. Maybe it's even spiritual and ceremonial. But it could be that you're at a point, a threshold in your life, that what God is going to draw out of you is not what has always been, what you can always expect of yourself, but the best, which has been saved till now. Something new and vibrant which is full of flavor and life and possibility that will cast shine on another and invite God's transformative work to be present in my story and in yours because God sees what can be drawn out. Family matters. Family helps us to know who we are. And we know how we can equip our families and our family of faith. We are called in this place as kin to one another. Whether or not you know the names and the stories and the identities of the people who share the pew or join us online, whatever the case might be, we are a family together out of whom God draws new and best things that have been saved till now that we might work for the transformation of the world together. We got to be in the business of being a family that reveals the glory of God. That works towards redemption, health, wholeness, and healing. That offers forgiveness, mercy, and grace. That above all shows love, charity, and works towards justice. And the family of faith said, Amen. Let's pray.